1: My co-host, Joe Weisenthal, is away this week. Uh, I am recording this on September 1st, which means it is the start of a new quarter. And whenever we have the start of a new quarter, it's usually a time to start reflecting on what's happening in money markets. And there has been a lot happening in money markets so far this year. So, uh, you know, just today we have 82 participants placing $1.19 trillion at the Fed's reverse repurchase agreement facility, the reverse repo facility. Um, And I have to say, the US financial system right now is kind of awash in liquidity, and it has been for some time. And that's causing problems for banks who have to handle all these deposits, uh, problems for money market funds, and of course, problems for the Fed, so all this liquidity means that money market rates have basically been pressured lower all year. Um, so much so that the Fed has actually had to tweak some of its facilities, including uh, the reverse repo facility, back in June, uh, to prevent those rates from going even lower. And more recently, it surprised the market by introducing a standing repo facility. So. We have had a lot of requests to talk about this on Odlots, and uh, no surprise, we've had requests to speak to one person in particular, a repeat AllBots guest. We're going to be talking to Zoltan Pozar, of course, the global head of short-term interest rates over at Credit Suisse. Zoltan, welcome to the show again.
2: Thank you very much for having me back.
1: So I'm trying to think where to start, but maybe you could Begin by describing the general state of liquidity and money markets at, at the moment? Like, when I say the financial system is awash in liquidity, what exactly do we mean?
2: The, the general, what is the general state? The general state is things that haven't happened before are now happening. So, so again, let, let's, let's perhaps start with cross currency basis. This is something that we are used to as, as being very negative. You know, there is also, there, there's always an excess demand for dollars. And that excess demand for, for, for dollars is gone. The cross currency basis is pretty much closed. You have some jurisdictions, uh, smaller countries, where the cross currency basis is even positive Mexico, South Africa, in, in China. Uh, you know, these, these, are, these are quite unusual things. LIBOR is dormant. I mean, the, the, the basis to OIS is, is three basis points, it. very tight. Repo and bill yields are, are very low. And, you know, but this, what this is a reflection of is, is naturally just, you know, too much cash in the system relative to the demand for this money. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, I think we are in a period where uh, things are going to be very different for quite some time relative to how things were over the past five years. I think over the past five years, We've had sort of a, a golden era for stir traders because we've had so many, so many spread moves in the money markets. You know, the, the, the LIBOR basis or the cross-currency basis has gone, you know, the repo markets acted out in the past. But if you think about why liquidity was tight as opposed to abundant, there are basically three reasons. You know, the Fed stopped QE in 2015. And then the ECB and the BOJ were just starting. So we were in this position where there was an excess supply of euro and yen. and People didn't know what to do with it, so they spotted for dollars. So that drove that, that specialness to the dollar in, in the FX stock market. Then we had Basel III that was getting rolled out. And so nobody understood that, right? So you had this relative shortage of dollars combined with an ever-growing shortage of balance sheet for various parts of Basel getting rolled out. LCR, SLR, the GC scores, you know, the banks themselves had to learn how to manage these ratios, the market learn how to trade these ratios. And then we had like these, these little idiosyncratic things like uh, money fund reform, corporate tax reform. And so, so these were always banking things around. Some of the most experienced third traders would tell you that they've never traded as much front end basis in their career. You know, some of those careers spent 30 years as they did between 2015 and 2019. And so then you fast forward to today, we now have so much liquidity, uh, and this is this is particularly a case for the US dollar, that you know, the, the Fed is doing QE faster than, than the BOJ or the ECB. So so there is there's just an ample supply of US dollars. Regulations are not getting tighter. If anything, they are getting easier. The Fed has become a dealer of last resort. We have the swap lines, we have the standing people facility before banks, we have the standing repo facility for, for foreign central banks. So so this is a very different environment. And then in the midst of this, you know, a lot of liquidity, a lot of balance sheets, a lot of excess cash in the system, there's also, you know, not as much activity in the world economy that needs to get financed. So if you just think about why foreign banks elsewhere, you know, borrow dollars, it's because they need to finance trade flows or 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 whatnot. So debt demand is Dormant. I think I think capital flows are a bit more domestic. You know, the the FX hedge flows are not as dominant as they used. The relative value hedge funds are kind of checked out at the moment because there's not a lot of opportunities. And so, you know, there's and you know the best reflection of of all this excess cash as you mentioned is all this 1.2 trillion dollars of cash that's sitting in the reverse repo facility, which you literally want to think about as money the system doesn't need either because it doesn't have the balance sheet for it or because there's no use or outlet for that money. All
1: right, this brings me to my next question, because I think a lot of people, when they hear that the system is awash in liquidity, there's all this excess cash, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And yet, you know, clearly this is something that the Fed at least has been responding to. Um, I mentioned that it tweaked the reverse repo facility and then it started the standing repo facilities. What exactly is the problem here?
2: Well, I wouldn't say that it's a problem. I, th- I, think that the way, I think that the way all this is clearing in the system is actually quite beautiful and, and kind of hassle and, <laughs> and, and, and problem-free. You know, I think you're so, the
1: only person that would describe this as beautiful.
2: Well, look, I, I think it's beautiful because, you know, the, the Fed designed this system, basically. So, you know, I mean, you put, you put reserves in so, You know, the central bank has a balance sheet, and then someone has to hold the liabilities of the central bank. And we have a beautiful mechanism where you know, this money is going to flow through the path, path of risk resistance to whoever has the balance sheet. And so, and so that's what we are seeing. And again, you know, the reverse repo facility, you, you literally want to think about there as foam on the runway. So it doesn't matter how big a plane you're going to eventually crash on the runway. There's a lot of foam there. So the impact is not going to be painful. So what do I mean by that? You know, people, people talk about, let, let's find, let's find some, some, you know, spread opportunity we can trade in the money. Maybe there's going to be a run on Tether. And then, you know, the, the Tether is going to have to sell, you know, $60 billion of, of commercial paper, something like that. I mean, you know, the, the, there are these ideas floating out there because we don't really have a lot of ideas to trade. So what would happen in, in such a scenario? Nothing. I mean, a money fund, Complex that has $1.2 trillion stashed away at the, at the reverse repo, earning five basis points. Whatever dislocation you're going have in the CP market from someone having to sell $60 billion commercial paper, hypothetically, is going to be scooped up and they will be asking for more opportunities like that. Right. So this is, this is just extra cash that will be there to, to get deployed to, to harvest whatever spread we have in FX swaps or. or, or or or, or libor so 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 that's a lot now people often bring up you know this is a problem for the banks but again this is not really a problem for the banks because you know the banks now have again and i think it's quite beautiful a, a mechanism whereby if in the morning they have cash coming in that they don't have the balance sheet for they can just push that cash away in the afternoon you know, and so that money that, that, that comes in in the morning and swells the bank's balance sheets, if you push it away into the money funds, and our money funds can place it at the, at the reverse repo facility, you know, this is a mechanism that enables the, the system to kind of clear and, and get around balance sheet bottlenecks. And you know, the, the reverse repo facility has no limits. I mean, it's $80 billion per counterparty. We are you know, some distance away still from... Some some accounts maxing out the counterparty limit, but you know the Fed indicated that they can base the counterparty cap to to a much higher number. So, so really, th- th- there is there is there is no limits to you know this system is is well designed, it's well built, it's working, and it's doing what it's supposed to do. And frankly, I think you know all this money that's going into money funds and ultimately is getting deployed in the in the reverse repo facility. You want to think about it two ways. You know there, there's two things happening. Number one, we have massive bill paydowns that are happening at the moment because that's something we don't need to talk about. But you know, there's these bill paydowns. And so money funds are losing a current asset that they have in their existing book of business. And then they have cash coming in and they need to place it somewhere else. And that's the RRP facility. So that's just the rotation within, within these money fund portfolios. The other is new money that into the money funds. And that new money is, is the money that the large banks are, are pushing away because they don't have the balance sheet for that. And so there is something very, very interesting happening, which is, which is that at any given point in time, when a bank gets a new deposit, especially under COVID, it's either a new deposit because there is QE happening. And as well, you know, when QE happens, Deposits get created in the banking system, but those are low-quality deposits. Because some institutions sold a bond to the Fed and got that's institutional hot money that doesn't really have a lot of value from the perspective of the bank. So the banks are pushing that stuff away. And then there's also still uh, a lot of stimulus happening. You know, unemployment insurance checks are going out. We have COVID payments. We have uh, uh, all sorts of you know, payments that the government is still making to the households. Those are the good deposits. So if you have a banking system that is balance sheet constrained, then the largest banks are balance sheet constrained in the U.S. You know, This is also a mechanism that enables these banks to take all these deposits as they are coming in and then they, and at the end of the day, make a choice as to this is good quality, this is bad quality. So the good quality I want to make room for on my balance sheet and I want to retain it. And this bad stuff, I just want to push away into a money fund because it has absolutely no value from, from, from a liquidity perspective. And so it's actually a facility that helps the banks to cherry pick up the deposits they want to hold. And so it works. It works. And you know, it, you know, we often think about the RRP facility as the floor underpinning the basement of, of money market rates. And it's, and it's a floor to money market rates too. So I think it's big, but it's doing as it's supposed to do. And frankly... Absolutely no difference between you know Treasury's cash balances being at one and a half trillion or the reverse facility being at one and a half trillion. It's it's the same thing. It's just there's different mechanisms uh, through which the system holds the cash.
3: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: So if the reverse repo facility is successful in the sense that, you know, it's setting the floor on interest rates um, and it's soaking up this excess um, liquidity in the system. Why did the Fed feel the need to start paying interest on it? So, you know, interest used to be zero. And then in June, the Fed raised it to five basis points. And here, I think I should note that this is actually a call that you got wrong, right? You, you weren't expecting yes, them yes. to raise that interest. So what's going on there? And what's your take on that?
2: Yes, that, that's, that's, a call, that's a call I got wrong. Um, look, I think I would say it's an extreme aversion to, to negative interest rates in the U.S., um, which, I basically, which I basically misread. You know, the, the interest on, on the reverse repo was raised to five basis points because, I mean, look, the backdrop for this is, you know, if you're the Fed, you have two groups you talk to all the time, the banks and the money fund. So the banks are telling you, I can't take any more deposits because I'm full. You know, I have an SLR, and I have an SLR constraint, you know, the reserves haven't been exempted from the SLR, I'm not going to take. Then the money funds are telling you, well, I'm not going to take the money either because, you know, the RRP is earning zero. I have certain fixed costs or variable costs that are a function of my assets under management, so I need to be able to make a, a buck, you know, if, if I take new money. You know, my, my argument was basically, you can, you, a money fund can ultimately charge, charge the end investors a fee for, for, for taking their money. I think it would be the end of the world, um, because at the end of the day, the Fed cares about. A constellation of the administered of the of the of the overnight rates that it's looking at which are all interbank rates you know Fed funds euro dollars uh SOFR, repo all that stuff but you know the Fed shouldn't really care about the rate to end investors right there's a big difference between rates to end investors and interbank rates because that was my prior and so as as you said I was wrong but what did we learn from this from this episode of being wrong I think What we've learned is that you know the Fed cares not only about these interbank rates, but the Fed also cares about uh rates to end investors, they are averse to even bill yields going negative in episodes other than a massive crisis. You know, last March, uh, they don't want money fund yields to be negative, they don't want deposit rates in a banking system to be, to be negative. So, so, they basically just raised the RRP rate to five basis points. I think the money funds got an asset that is sufficient for them to, which yields enough for them to be able to cover their costs, to even charge a fee to the end investors and for the end investors to end up with, with, a, with, a, with a positive yield. So I think, I think the, you know, the short answer is there's that extreme aversion to the negative benefits, which is something we don't do in the U.S.,
1: I'm kind of amused that so many people complain about the Fed manipulating interest rates. And meanwhile, the Fed is concerned about private actors manipulating interest rates downwards to a, to a negative level. So one of the reasons Joe and I love having you on the show, Zoltan, is because you do this research that is incredibly granular, where you talk about you know the individual incentives for each bank. Why they do the things that they do? You just touched on it, you know, with the Federal Reserve—the idea that the Fed is absolutely loath to have negative rates in the headlines. Basically, um, can you walk us through exactly how banks are thinking about various forms of cash-like instruments at the moment? So, you know, when we say the system is awash in liquidity, that liquidity kind of comes in, in different. Format so you know you can have U.S. Treasuries, you can have agency MBS, um, you can have excess reserves that banks get from the Fed, and I'm wondering like how are banks thinking about that mix at the moment?
2: Well, um, it's a it's 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 a simple it's a simple answer. Uh, at at various points over the past five years, you know these liquidity portfolios are always are always being up. So, you know, whatever is the yield, that's what the banks do with that liquidity. Look, uh, sometimes, you know, they lend into the repo market because it yields better than on reserves at the Fed. Interest on reserves is always the the starting point, of course. Uh, Sometimes you lend in the FX swap market because yields are much better there. And in both of these cases, you know, the opportunity set is pretty... It's pretty bad. I mean, you know, repo is well below IOR. As I said, you know, the, the relative value hedge fund community is kind of checked out at the moment because there's there's not a lot of uh, you know bond basis opportunities um, to 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 put on and to, to fund. So, so the repo market is is very quiet. The FX swap market, similarly, when you look at you know the the, the very front end points in the FX swap market where these banks are active, um, Tom next spot next points. Implied yields are just a basis point above IOER. I mean, we've never seen things this tight since possible three was rolled out. So, this is, this is, uh, this is again what we started the conversation with. It's too much, too much liquidity, not enough, not enough demand for this cash. Sometimes, you know, the FX swap market and the repo market all, also each other. And so the FX swap market can pull the repo rates up. But so money markets, again, are, are dormant. So, if you're a bank portfolio, you cannot really do anything but go out. And when you go out the curve, you will be looking at other HQLA, which is which is mortgages, mortgages and treasuries. And then you, know, you, can, you can buy these treasuries which offer a spread over, over OIS, or you can buy it outright, you can buy it, buy it on asset spot. But basically, treasury securities are the frontier. And when you look at when you look at the bank HQLA portfolios, you will you will see that you know, they, have, they have added a lot of treasury securities under the pandemic. And so, you know, good for the US government because they have a lot of paper that they that they need to issue. But that's basically where the money is going at the at the moment. I think I think it would also be interesting to kind of dig into, you know, some bank by bank examples of happening in this department, because, you know, when we talk about banks, it sounds like it's plural, right? Because there's a lot of banks but actually what's happening is that there is only two banks really that have done all the heavy lifting in terms of in terms of buying all these treasuries and and that th- those two banks are JP Morgan and Bank of America these are these are two of the most important creditors to the US government at the moment uh, other than other than the Fed of course you know but but these are two banks that that approach their their bond buying strategy completely Differently. and you know what i will say now is you know some of the things that have been said at, at these banks' earnings calls and so it's not uh, not an inside deal or, or, or anything like that you know uh, bank of America's management has, has mentioned a number of times on their on their earnings calls that they are uh, they are happy with the fact that they have called the bottom in rates uh, during the third quarter of 2020 they have been slowing all their access liquidity into into the trade and mortgage markets uh, ever since. So they have this programmatic buying of treasury securities and they are always in the market uh, regardless of, 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 of yield levels simply because you know, that's a bank that has, that has a management philosophy where, look, there's no loan demands, but these deposits keep coming in. So we're a bank. So if the deposits are coming in, but there's no loan demand, we have to do something with this excess cash. So we just you know, buy securities. If households and corporations don't borrow uh, what the government does, is, you know, we're just underwrite that. Uh, JP Morgan is is a bit more different because they, they always have, you know, strong views about rates. And so Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders, he basically said, yields are moving higher, uh, inflation is coming, the Fed is going to have to chase down this inflation. So yields are going higher. So we will hold off on spending all these $500 billion of reserves that we have at the Fed until yields move higher. And so, you know, They didn't spend any of this money. Uh, Bank of America has been programmatic buying. I guess the question from here going forward is, was JP Morgan going to adapt to a world where, and this is is a good segue into into the standing repo facility and this idea of dealer of last resort. You know, in in my writings, and I think I mentioned this on this call too before, JP Morgan was always the lender of next to last resort of the system right because before the Fed would step in you know they had always the most amount of reserves in the system so whether it was the FX swap market that was acting out or the repo market you know it was JP Morgan lending into it on the margin there was value there was a lot of value in having all this excess cash because uh, you know as, as Warren Buffett would say you know cash has option value so if you're a bank portfolio and especially if you're, if you're JP Morgan and you're your heart of the financial system, you need to have that cash to be able to kind of lend into these money market locations. Right now, that opportunity set is extremely poor. I mean, the only, the only, thing, the only thing that gets people excited year and turn, which is, which, is, which is pretty depressing, by the way. So all year, there's nothing to do when there's the year and turn. You have to kind of handicap that. But so that opportunity set is poor. Yields were supposed to go higher, but they didn't. They went lower. You know we have a taper announcement. yields didn't do anything on the back of that, so I think it will be very interesting to see during the second half of the year how this posture at uh, at this at this bank is is, is going to change for going forward because if yields are not moving higher, they're basically giving up a lot of net interest income that other banks are earning and so it was just very interesting
1: you know there there is a theory out there that bank demand for treasuries to satisfy the li- liquidity requirements has been one of the factors, you know, maybe even a very important factor in keeping yields very low. Um, And, you know, this was sort of a mystery in markets Um, over the summer and in the spring. Why are treasury yields so low when it looked like the U.S. economy was actually recovering? Um, how how big a factor do you think? bank demand has been when it comes to yields.
2: It's not it's not in the numbers. I mean you just don't see you just don't see any kind of level shift in 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 banks buying more treasuries. So you know we, we will have the cold reports out in a couple of weeks, but I uh, but I doubt that there will be any big increase in bank buying because you know this from the VPAJ numbers. number. So you just you just don't see any of that. I mean you know the the one thing I would point to is you know some of the there's two things you know it's always about flows and 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 technical so to speak and then there is the narrative i mean you know the delta variant got a little out of hand and you know articles about that kind of started to percolate uh roughly when when yields uh have started to rally so i think i think a lot of this is uh partly part of the virus and the delta variant uh but also tga balances were coming down right so so all this cash was coming into the system and when when large amounts of money are coming into the system, there's always some leakage because you know people think about DGA comes down, so there's fewer bills, so all that money goes to RRP. Yes, most of it, but some of it leaks. And so someone who was in bills probably went into an aggregate bond fund, and that aggregate bond fund had to kind of deploy that money coming in, and so there was some bid for for fixed income. So so I think uh, I think it's a combination of those two, but it's definitely not been. The bank portfolios that uh, that caused that caused the rally i mean it was certainly not uh, uh jp morgan because they were kind of waiting for the others the other thing to happen you know so
1: okay well um let's talk about the standing repo facility then um you know when the fed announced that there were a lot of different interpretations over what exactly it's meant to be doing so you know on the one hand some people were saying it's supposed to prevent more blowups in the repo market. Um, but then there were some other people who were saying it's basically paving the way for the end of QE and allowing the Fed to start the taper. So how are you viewing it?
2: Yes. So, so the, 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 the latter one was uh, you know, the view that I that I subscribe to as well. Uh, look, we don't need a standing repo facility now. I mean, there's so much money in the system that we won't need it for the next five years uh, in, in the aggregate sense, you know? Um, so the, the, the standing repo facility, I think is going to be, I would say we are already see the impact. I mean, you have two standing repo facilities, one for three, actually, if you want to think about it. conceptually. actually one is there for the dealers that should be able to replace funding they need to um between between the buy and the cash providers. If the cash providers pull away from the dealers, the Fed is going to step in. And so the dealers will be fine. Standing repo facility is just a term, but again, I I, I tend to think about these in in terms of types of entities that have access to it. So there's the dealers, then there will be the bank portfolios, large and small, that can that can apply. And then you have the FEMA repo facility which is which is the same for, for foreign central banks. So that's 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 one one Lego block, so to speak. I also want to say the same day that the Fed announced the standing repo facility, uh, the G thirty also issued a report, part of which was basically recommending that we also need a standing repo facility, but we need to make this available to anyone who owns Treasury collateral. And so there was always these two views about who should we make who, who should get access to the standing repo facility. And so I always thought you know the 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 issue with opening up for everyone is that, you know, it's just, it's just a very broad system, right? So, you know, if, if it's hedge funds too, how do you draw the line? I mean, you let in the little ones and the big ones. If it's asset managers, again, how do you, how do you design the, the, the criteria for access and, and haircuts and whatnot? And so, so that's cumbersome. Then if you think about what the Fed did, it's actually a, it's, it's actually a beautiful middle ground because, you know, the dealers, of course, they always deal with bank portfolios and foreign central banks. What are they? I mean, they are half the buy side. You know, if you think about the buy side from a dealer's perspective, you know, it's the insurance companies, it's the asset managers, it's the hedge funds and the bank portfolios and the foreign central banks. So basically, two very important actors from, from the buy side got access to the standing repo facility, which means that in the next crisis and there will be an X crisis because there's always are, that there always are, you know, they will be able to go to the Fed to turn bonds into, into liquidity, whether you're a foreign central bank or, or a bank portfolio. And that's going to be a massive help for everyone else in the system because the dealers won't have to real, deal with these accounts because they can go to the Fed directly. And so everybody else is going to have more, uh, more balance sheet that uh, that, the can, that the dealers can provide them. So this is this is how the, the contours of the next crisis is going to play out. Observation number one. Observation number two. You know why now? Look, I think I think anyone anyone that has, like if you're a foreign central bank now you need sixty billion dollars less in liquidity because you know that the Fed will give it to you. Now. So if you, if you if you think about the typical FX manager it has some liquid assets in the money markets and it has some longer-term securities in treasuries of marketing that that money market bit is basically you know you just leave money on the table because that's your liquidity insurance that's the money that you can spend on short order if something unexpected happens uh, you can now allocate 60 billion less uh, to those types of instruments because if and when that liquidity event the Fed is going to be able to provide to you that liquidity on demand for a fixed price. And, you know, these liquidity events always last like a week or two weeks or a month, maybe at most, and then the flows change. But, you know, it's a, it's, a nice, it's a nice tool to have. And you can also know that, you know, the Fed is not going to be opportunistic. You know, it, 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 not, it might not be the case if you, if you want to raise the liquidity in the market because you with dealers, uh, dealers can charge you a price if you're doing this, the work can get out. You know, it's 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 not supposed to, but you know, people always talk. It's like, well, one account is rep, one account is selling. I would I would also say that you know this repo facility, even though it's going to be more expensive than the market because it's priced a little bit wider than the market design, there will be an anonymity premium. Uh, that foreign central banks are are willing to to, to pay up for uh, because because they can just raise their raise their liquidity anonymously. You know, if, if you remember China selling uh you know back 2015, 2016 all, all those treasuries and and it caused some backup in dealer inventories and swap threads around. I would even say that those episodes probably are going to be less painful going forward because you can just go to the Fed. And so, instead of selling those treasuries into finance then get those dollars through your interventions in the in the in the in the in, the, in, the, in the local currency market. So, so I think this is this is going to smooth things. I would also say, since the standing repo facility was announced, we've had a ten-year auction and a five-year auction that has gone extremely, you know, well, especially the ten-year auction, and we've seen the foreign participation at those and at, at those auctions. So. Which was a record participation by, by foreign official accounts. So, so I think here's a liquidity tool, and the foreign central banks are saying thank you, and they are, they are underwriting the, the, the deficits the result. And you know, if you think about five large central banks, uh, each allocating sixty billion dollars extra to treasuries, that's that's dollars. I don't know, half a paper, or something like that. So, you know, foreign central banks, I think over time they will change their behavior. Hold a little less liquidity and lend a little longer to the US government because the other arm of the US government is going to fund their liquidity. So that's that's fun. The bank portfolios will be able to apply starting October 1st for, for access to this facility. And you know, the bank portfolios, I, I think, I think this is not going to be as big a deal for, for the big banks like JP Morgan and, and, um, and Bank of America um, because because they are they are a league of their own. But, you know, there is 20, 30 or so regional banks, smaller banks that also will qualify. And I think it's an overlooked fact that a lot of these smaller banks also have uh, a lot of excess reserves that they accumulated over the past years. Um, I think think that number, um, I don't have it on top of my head, but it's something like 400 billion dollars. They can also spend some of this liquidity on treasury securities and, and mortgages because they know that, you know, the Fed is there at 25 basis points. Chances are I will never need that liquidity, right? So if there's a spread in buying treasuries, you should just, you should just do that. So, so, I, so I think this is going to move the needle uh, a lot uh, in terms of making treasuries and collateral in general more attractive, more attractive than cash. Which is again, if you look at the side guys, that's precisely that's precisely what we need. This is this is generating demand. This is generating demand for uh, for uh, for treasury securities
1: from two very important buyers. Yeah, this is something I wanted to ask you about because there was this concern around who will actually buy treasury securities and agency MBS, so you know, uh, mortgage bonds issued by the GSEs when the Fed starts to taper QE. And you're suggesting that it's, I guess, a non issue now because of the standing repo facility. Is that right?
2: Yes. I, I think this is a, this is a, the, the question of who will buy is, is a very important question. Um, in retrospect, who buys on the margin, it's it's always very simple, you know, like, but in real time, when you need to figure out who is going to buy next, uh, that, that that's what people get, you know, confused. That it's just kind of, Hard to make, but, but look, if, if we were to tell, here's a brief history of, of rates and funding markets over the past five years. Okay. And it's, you know, we always talk about the marginal buyer and, and this program because, you know, like you know, life is on the margin, everything in markets is on the margin. So who is the marginal buyer? 2015 to 2017, it was the Asian FX hedged buyers that were extremely important and and. Died. For flows. So they were buying the treasuries, they were spotting yen for dollars, Europeans were doing the same. And so that, that, that they were the marginal buyers. And then the cross-currency basis blew out and then they you know, had their uh, trial by fire. So their you know, demand kind of changed a little bit after that. Then you had a bond basis that opened up. Uh, the Fed started to hike rates. The, the curve gradually flattened. So it was all the RV hedge funds. Um, and they funded everything in the repo market, and then we had that repo market episode in September 2019. The Fed started to rebuild the liquidity buffer of the system with bill purchases, and then it came. And basically, you know, that was that was a moment where, even though you were building up the liquidity buffer of the system and you were going back to this excess reserves regime, you didn't do it fast enough, and the pandemic forced your hand. And basically the Fed needed to take out all the, all the RV hedge funds from these bond-based positions because um, they, they, they couldn't fund, fund these positions. And then, and then the bank portfolio stepped in, and they became the dominant buyers of treasury. So this is a span of six years, you know, foreign FX hedged accounts funding in the FX bond market, relative value hedge funds funding in the repo market. Um, and now we have, you know, the bank portfolios supported with a standing repo facility in case there is a need for it. And so who is going to buy going forward? I think, I think the bank portfolios will be a very important uh, part of the picture because that's where the excess cash is. We, we just basically broadened and incentivized a slightly broader set of banks and foreign central banks to do the same that, that JP Morgan and Bank of America have been doing uh, ever since the, the, the beginning of the pandemic. So. So I think we are we are basically buttering up and, and appealing to to a certain buyer base that's uh, that's that's going to be doing the, the bidding of the government and and also keep in mind you know we are also in an environment where loan loan demand is very weak okay? and a bank needs to lend the bank the bank has, has has capital and that that needs to be deployed and so I think another another very important. Thing to keep in mind is that when you think about the lending process, you know, a bank makes a loan, creates deposits. That's the kind of tradition, that's the way things are supposed to work, I guess. That's traditional. But the other version of this is a bank buys a treasury security and creates a deposit when they, when they do that. And, it's, and, and then the government is going to spend all that money. So if you think about this infrastructure bill, for example, you know, normally, it's all the private sector building stuff. But when the private sector is building stuff, you know, some developer goes to a bank, you, know, you want to build Hudson Yards. You go to a bank, you take out of finances. Okay? And so the bank made a loan, created a deposit, and the developer of Hudson Yards is going to spend it to all the contractors. And so that's what that looks like on the balance sheet of the banking system. If it's the government doing infrastructure projects, they will borrow the money and they will send it to the little contractors to build whatever. So then all of a sudden it's not loan deposits, but it's treasury securities and deposits. And probably we will see a lot more of this type of lending going forward than we have seen, you know, this pure form of the old old, old type of lending, which is all which is all loan-based. You know, this is this is basically the future. I think I think the banks will be buying a lot more treasuries and, and a lot more mortgage backed securities. And the fact that this repo facility is there to help. In, uh, in occasional liquidity hiccups uh, without a stigma, I think I think it's going to be a huge incentive. It's always about incentives. You know again, in, in retrospect, it's always simple, as I said over the past five years, who, who were the most important marginal buyers. I think going forward it will be the banks. and and that means that it's also going to be a very stable form of funding to government because it's all going to be sticky deposits.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So I'm a little bit concerned just from a um, a very like self-interested financial journalist perspective that you're laying out a financial system that seems quite smooth and seems like kind of unlikely to end up in a massive blow up um, that, you know, someone like me can write lots of articles about, Um, which in some ways, you know, money markets uh, and the repo market was always supposed to be a boring area of the financial system that just worked. Um, But then it exploded in 2008 and then we've had various explosions since then. Is is there anything interesting coming up in, in repo that we should be watching out for like, you know, what what should be getting us excited? Because you've described it as this beautiful system and very smooth in terms of functioning.
2: Yes, um, well, as I, as I said, it's it's quite depressing in my <laughs> Um and you know, just just like you would like to write about interesting things, you know, people want to put on put on trades about you know spread blow ups and whatnot. Um, yes, look, you're, you're right. I mean, you know, the the dealer of last resort was missing from the picture, In, institutional, you know, like, that, that's why we had that September 2019 episode, um, the swap lines are now there, the standing repo facility is there, and the Fed is doing this dealer of last resort thing on both sides of its balance sheet, right? So the Fed is keeping interest rates from going too low with the reverse repo facility. It's, it's keeping repo rates from going too high. And, and, you know, the FX swap market from, from, from blowing up with the, with the spot lines. And so, yes, this is, a very, this is a very stable era of the system, I would say, that we are, we are looking forward to. But, but, I, but I would also say that, you know, this was a five-year learning process of the Fed, right? Because what were the past five years about? The past five years were about, um, you know, we had financial reform. We had Basel III. Bank balance sheets are less flexible. You know, uh, I, I, you know, all all the things that happened over the past five years, and so the Fed was still thinking. I would say that the Great Financial Crisis was a was a one off, and um, the things we had to do then, hopefully, we will never have to do again. And so here we are today, where. Some of the things that the Fed did during the great financial crisis, some of the things that the Fed did last March, um, March 2020, they became institutionalized and they are now standing facilities. So they are definitely going to take the edge off of, uh, of, of funding markets. And so whether this is good or bad, what this means is that the frontier is shifting elsewhere because whatever problems we will have, is, is probably going to happen in, um, in in some in some other jurisdiction, but I think dollar funding markets are are uh, are are going to be much more stable, uh, much more stable going forward. Things will be very quiet uh, until we get to a point where the banking system again is is liability constrained, because there is just so much cash in the system that uh, you know the banks are not going to have any problem funding problems. To the foreseeable future, and you know, as, as Ben Bernanke said at the end of the first three QE episodes, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is very big, and over time, the economy and the banking system is going to grow into this big balance sheet. I, I think, in a similar vein, it's probably going to take a few more in 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 Treasury securities and a, a, few, and a, and a few more trillion assets before before all this excess cash gets get soaked up. But again, once that once that tight Type security environment arrives. I think the belts and suspenders around how we are going to deal with that tightness are are indeed just going to to make things um, less less spectacular and, and the spread the wilds will be less spectacular than they were between 2015 and, uh, and and the beginning of the pandemic. I think it's an end of an era.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a, a much more um, boring system awaits us. A less spectacular system. Uh- Zoltan, it's great having you on, as always. Thank you so much.
2: OK, thanks Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, having me yeah. on.
1: So I don't have that much to add um, to what Zoltan just said. And of course, it's always weird. Uh, doing this when I'm basically talking to myself. But I do think the end of an era idea is an interesting one. And it does feel like we've seen a sort of step change in the repo market, given that we now have these two facilities. As Alton said, you have the reverse repo facility that is putting a floor under rates, and then you have the standing facility that's basically putting a ceiling on rates. And it just feels like I don't know the system is going to be much more constrained or much more controlled much more steady going forward so i guess we'll have to wait and see what happens um you know with a new system there's always the chance that you do see new risks develop um so maybe there's something out there that no one has seen yet and we will get a chance to write something about it one day okay This has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Joe isn't here, but of course you can follow him on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can also follow our producer, Laura Carlson at Laura M. Carlson. And you can follow Bloomberg's head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.